And this is John Reed. I'm rejoined by Vinny Merchandani for part two of our session. We're going to talk about robotics, a topic that both you and I are passionate about. But you hold the trump card because you, you actually did enough you ha- you research. Had to, you had to use that name, huh? What's that? Robotics? No, trump card. Oh, trump. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Trump has become this word, you know. I used to use it a lot. And now well, it's kind of appropriate for my book. Yeah. So. so ever since I've known you, you've had a strategy of deep primary research on topics around corporate innovation but this time you you shifted gears tell us about tell us about the book actually it's it's not so the name of the book is silicon collar which if i were to elevator pitch would be we are known as white collar workers or blue collar workers or ups as a brown collar my point is all that is passe we are all silicon collar workers because technology machines robots drones are affecting our work much more dramatically than ever before okay so let's quit pretending we're white collar blue collar we're all silicon collar workers right. now the book turns out i was meant to i meant to write an innovation book kind of in the new polymaths uh, kind of um team so I interviewed 50 different executives, everything from the Golden State Warriors and how they technology is helping players and coaches become, you know, next generation um, uh, metrics, to BP and how they're using robotic crawlers to go down rigs so people don't have to dangle down robes. How are they using drones to monitor pipelines in remote areas in Alaska and so on? to KPMG and how the public accounting profession is evolving with big data and forensics and other technologies to hospital, uh, Benioff's um, Children's Hospital in San Francisco. I talked to the chief medical information officer about how robotic tugs are delivering um, supplies and how robotic surgeries are happening and how transcription has gotten all with you know voice recognition improving has become less liver intensive and so on. So. All that is the innovation part. What kept hitting me as I was doing my research was there's a hell of a lot of pessimism around machines taking over mm. our jobs, right? right? Dystopian future, machines are killing jobs. I resemble and, that remark, Vinny. Well, John, you and I, much as we are popular, don't have the impact that an Oxford University does, an MIT does, no, a Gardner does, yeah. a McKinsey does. So many big brands have been beating the drumbeat of 20 million jobs are going to be lost, 100 million jobs are going to be lost. You get a lot of eyeballs with that headline. Uh, it's irresponsible, though. When you yeah. that with that when you have that brand, you right. better have with that power comes responsibility. Right. right. And unfortunately, too many of them have been pessimistic. Not necessarily negative for the sake of being negative, but they're pessimistic, and so it's having a chilling effect down to the common man, right? And so the pessimism mm-hmm. is, for, and the politicians are taking advantage of that pessimism. So it, it is, I had to do a lot of research to offset that pessimism by looking at 100 years of automation. So this is not the innovation part. I actually turned historian and I had to go back and look at four or five sectors. So I looked at the grocery industry, for example. The UPC code was patent, patented in 1952. Mm-hmm. Didn't get commercialized till 1974, and it didn't kill jobs. It actually increased them because UPC cords 
allowed companies, Procter & Gamble, to come out with many different variants of their products, Kellogg's to come out with 100 different cereals, actually increase grocery shops. Automobiles have been, machines have been taken over since 1958 when Chrysler introduced uh, cruise control, right? We're on that journey. So my point is automation as technologies, we think it has impact right away because, you know, we're used to seeing Moore's law, you know, dramatic impact. Mm. The way society absorbs automation is much, much slower. It takes decades. So I'm not as pessimistic. I'm pragmatic where mm. we are afraid of all these technologies uh, impacting the workplace. It's happening. It's going to happen much slower than than on surface it appears. So um, just to clarify for listeners, don't go out on Amazon at today and look for the book because it's not there yet. <laughs> it yeah, might be. September. Yeah, so in September. In the meantime, if you go to dealarchitect.com, you could sign up for newsletters, get updates. Uh, so I'm sure Vinny will also be blogging on the themes. You've already shared some of the content on your blog. So is the book then sort of a combination of a historical look at automation and then what you've learned in various industries about where we're headed from here? Or? There's actually three themes. So the okay. two you just mentioned. One is... Um, how machines are making us smarter, speedier, safer, right? All my interviews with the Golden State Warriors and BP and KPMG, and I interviewed 50 different executives, winemaking, uh, advertising, very broad look at the labor economy, right? Um, second part of the book is to offset this pessimism, there's a lot of histor historical analysis of automation in groceries, in automobiles, in accounting, in the U.S. Postal Service. You know, everything that we thought would be dead by now. I mean, the U.S. Postal Service still supports 600,000 workers, right? And then I did a third part of the book because my research kept showing me the labor economy is actually pretty screwed up, very screwed up. You can't blame machines, how did it get so screwed up where we have, um, you know, young, digitally savvy workers and we have 50% unemployment in Spain not using their mm. young workers? Or sure. in the U.S., we've burdened our young workers with a trillion and a half dollars in debt. Or look at our aging workers, they don't have enough to retire on. Or look at our um, uh, talent management challenges that corporations have. So I've looked at all the trends in the labor economy as a third theme in the book, because I said, you can't blame machines for that. It's man-made problems. Right. And since I'm touching on jobs, I better present that um, uh, dysfunctional labor economy also. So you don't think that the increased capacity of machines to not, like you said, not just perform blue-collar functions, but cognitive functions, you don't think that's going to be like seismically disruptive? It's not because... Uh, you know, look at artificial intelligence in its different manifestations. So we had Turing tests. You probably heard of the Turing test, right? Mm. When a machine is, you can't tell the difference between whether it's a machine or a human being, um, then it'll pass the Turing test. That was defined in 1950. Every five years we get excited. Oh, you know, IBM Deep Blue beat um, Gary Kasparov. And so, surely the machine can now pass a Turing test. It didn't. Uh, you know, then we had Jeopardy, right? Now people are saying Amazon Echo machine learning can beat the Turing um, can beat the Turing test. Right. Seventy years later, we're still not there, right? 
So as technologists, we get all excited about these things. We hype it up. And the reality is the adoption, first of all, they're not ready to be implemented. When they're ready to be implemented, the adoption curves are much lower than, than we like. So to you don't think like in 20 years we're going to have mostly driverless cars on the road? I, I don't. And let me explain. Let, since you picked on driverless cars. Rip, three, rip from three. the headlines. Well, th- yeah. there are three elements to driverless cars that the book covers, right? There's technology of driverless cars, which has been evolving very nicely, but it's been evolving since 1958. Cruise control right. was introduced in 1958. LiDAR was introduced in 1992. Assistive cruise control has been available since 1999. DARPA had its challenge, driverless car challenge in 2004. It's been evolving nicely. And Google and Tesla and others have accelerated that in the last two, three years. Okay. But that's only part of the solution. Our road infrastructure has not inch forward hardly at all our laws have not evolved forward right right and then we keep forgetting incumbent interests are not exactly going to roll over and the biggest incumbent interest in automobiles is the driver we love to drive i mean mazda has a whole concept called zoom zoom mazda is not investing in driverless cars their view is human beings will always want to drive now we're not very good drivers we shouldn't be allowed to drive but we forget that there are incumbent interests. Auto insurance isn't going to exactly roll over. I mean, uh, cities that get a lot of speeding revenue are threatened with no revenue from driverless cars because they should run at the speed limit. They have no interest in exactly pushing driverless cars, right? Parking right. lots will be threatened by driverless cars because you don't need to park something for eight hours, right? Yeah. So all these incumbent interests aren't exactly going to just say, oh, wonderful, let's move to driverless cars, right? But so if you look at the three elements, technology is evolving nicely. Infrastructure is not evolving hardly at all. And let let me explain that. Delphi is a tier one supplier to the automobile industry. Just like the Google car, they've had a Delphi car going around the country using driverless technology. They've come back and reported that every state, and we are very uniform as a country, Every state has slightly different lane markings. So we mm. need to move to a consistent lane marking. We'll have to invest in new traffic lights that um, you know can deal with uh, driverless cars. We'll need new construction workers with sensors to deal with um, um, driverless cars. We need new optics to be able to communicate with, with this. All this is going to be needed when cities and counties are going to have shrinking fine revenue, right? Right. We, we haven't thought through all that. So I, I don't think it's going to happen for a long, long time. Now, there are some scenarios where it'll happen. So in Europe, they're looking at what's called truck platooning. So there's a driven car at the, at the head of a train. The following cars are driverless. And so there's advantages to that because you can have compressed spacing, right? The driverless car should be able to... Um, you know, rather than six feet needed, maybe able to manage with with, right. with um, a shorter distance. However, even in Europe, guess what the law is saying? It won't be implemented until 2020. And then the following car, uh, trucks will need a human being with their hand on the wheel. Right. So it's not going to kill the jobs. 
it's going to you know, it's going to allow for a more junior driver maybe to be in the in the in the following cars. So that's one scenario which is likely. In some planned cities or disciplined cities, I could see it happening. I can see it happening in in certain isolated highway areas. So gradually, you know, this will this will happen. The big challenge is anytime you'll have a hybrid driven cars and driverless cars, we're going to have chaos for a while. So I don't yeah. I, I don't see it. I don't see it. In two years, we'll all be having Uber uh, with driverless cars. Right. But don't you think that our our educational system is completely out of whack with the types of skills? I mean, I interact with a lot of younger people today, and I feel like a lot of them are not at all thinking about the kind of skills they're going to need to remain employed in a, in a world where machines can so easily handle surprisingly <clears throat> sophisticated tasks. I don't think they get that that's even happening. Well, and you're right, but this is the most, that generation is the most digitally savvy, right? That they've is They've grown true. up with, with um, iPads and they've grown up with um, Sonos in the home and, and they've grown up with Bluetooth in the car and so on. They will adapt to new technologies far better than you and I did, okay? So I'm, I'm not as worried about that generation adapting to that. We need to give them opportunities. I mean, unfortunately... We have this negative attitude towards millennials. They have a bad attitude and so on. And they do in some ways, but they're no worse than any other previous generation was, right? Uh, so I think it's more of a man-made issue versus a versus a that generation isn't ready to be. Well, and see, that would be my, my concern because I know you kind of rail on the pessimists. I get concerned about the optimists who fall into, in my mind, lazy, dangerous thinking that that as long as we innovate, jobs are sort of a byproduct no, of that no, innovation. No, I, I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. Okay, I'm not saying I'm gonna. I'm not saying I'm gonna create 200 million new jobs. I'm saying the estimates of 200 million jobs being lost are overstated. Yeah. Now, having said that, as a policy issue, if you look at the National Engin- uh, Academy of Engineers, 10 years ago, they put out what's called grand challenges. Yeah. In energy, in healthcare, in infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And we haven't made any progress in those 10 years. Deep space, there are new frontiers that we haven't even explored. Aren't those going to create new jobs? Right. But don't we have somewhat of an obligation to try to create that future as opposed to just hoping that a handful of lab techs are going to figure this out. Absolutely, and and yeah. and why, who is not who is not thinking about that? The academics may not be, but I right. can tell you, a number of entrepreneurs are thinking about that. Entrepreneurs and, are. I'll give you that. Yeah. And you know what? What some of the pessimists don't think about is what I call the unintended consequences, right? So if you were to ask the sporting industry. What are the most impactful technologies that have influenced your industry? Or if you talk to the housing industry and say, what's the most impactful technology? Sporting world would probably say, you know, nighttime broadcast, nighttime lighting is probably the most impactful, right? Housing will say, you know, all the new Zigbee stuff and so on is pretty influential, right? None of them give credit to the lawnmower. Think about it. Without the lawnmower, we would not have stadiums. It would not have led to irrigation innovations. It would not have led to AstroTurf. It would not have led to a whole bunch of other stuff. There are so many examples of ripple effects of 
humble innovations, then mankind kind of moves forward. Okay. Right. So I, I, I just think people are very linear in their thinking. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to this pessimism. So when we see a headline like our friend uh, and colleague Phil first over at HFS that says uh, automations impact India's services industry workforce is strength. 480,000 by 2021, a decline of 14%. Well, I mean, 14%, look, I'm not, I'm not naive to say th- that we don't have some shrinkage in different industries, right? Yeah. In my book, I talk about what's called 3D jobs, dull, dirty, dangerous jobs. As a society, we want to be automated, okay? Right. So the Indian industry is a little too labor-intensive, it's a little too labor intensive. See you, Ray. And, and <laughs> Sorry, we're getting interrupted by Ray, Ray Wang of all people. All right. Um, so the Indian industry is very labor intensive. They should be thinking about automating quite a few of the efficiencies. Sure. I, uh, in SAP Nation, I talked about how inefficient a lot of the outsourcing world is. Right. Now, if you look at Phil's estimate, 14% over the next 10 years, I, I don't have a problem with that shrinkage should not bother us. Right. It's not part of normal evolution of every industry. So I wrote a job about the day the, I wrote a blog about the day the robots took my job and it wasn't really a job. I volunteered shooting local city council meetings sometimes for my local TV company and I serve on the board there and I walked in one day and they said, well, we've got remote controlled cameras now. We don't, we don't need you anymore. And it it was a little bit of a disorienting, scary feeling, I have to say, you know, and and I wonder. But, but John, that was a task that yeah, yeah. piece of machinery took over. Did yeah, it take yeah. over your entire job? No, no. But had but the point being, like, I could easily imagine how someone in that circumstance could lose their entire entire job over something like that. And so let me do, give you so an example run, for my neighbor for my neighborhood. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we used to have uh, garbage trucks. It's in the book where there was a driver and there was a guy who was to dangle at the back and every every the house the dangler yeah i remember the, the dangler. dangler yeah right? yeah <laughs> every house the guy at the back would step out pick up the garbage and dump it in the back of the truck to me that's a dull dirty dangerous job i don't feel bad that that went away they were sure. having a tough time getting people to fill that job right and guess what else has happened forget the automation part we have moved to a truck that has a robotic arm. Yeah. Our bins have gotten standardized. The 95-gallon bins now. Right. The neighborhoods are much tidier. Our, our recycle rates have gone up dramatically. Okay, There are other benefits that came out of that, that the, the county is not paying as much to, uh, you know, the, from a sustainability perspective. There are other savings that we got. Right? And they can create new jobs to replace those that 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 dangler job okay i don't feel bad about losing those jobs right right certainly dangerous jobs i don't think you can get a lot of argument Dull, dirty and dangerous okay. not just dangerous right but but i think also you, you you look at you look at the predicament of of workers and you and are are you necessarily saying like well they're on their own or 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 do we need to like need massive programs to reskill some of these folks because if you spend 10 years in a so-called dull job like that, where do you go from there? So, you know? so, 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 John, part of what I looked at in the book when I looked at the labor economy, what really made me feel positive was the assumption is corporation lay off people and they're then 
They go to the permanently unemployed. I found so many examples of second act, third act, fourth act. Mm. You know, look at Dennis Howard, right? Look at how he's transitioned from chartered accountant to reporter to now a media entrepreneur, right? You look at Brian Summer. He went from Accenture, a partner, to having his own firm. Look at me, right? We have so many examples of people who transition. Human beings Those people are, are really from the creative class, okay. though, with deep educational backgrounds. You know, I think it's when a little bit... When you read bit, my book, you will see many examples And, and of we people. might be better off if those guys were still doing other <laughs> stuff anyway than being a painter. But that's a whole other topic. But uh, There are so many examples of people who have managed to reorient themselves. But are you really putting that on all that responsibility on the individual and not on no, us I think, to try I think, to create... Opportunities. I think at part a of the, massive scale. Part of where the educational train. system needs to evolve is, right. it's broken in that they expect people to go through six, eight years of training, right? Right. When it should be much more three months, reorient yourself to a new opportunity. Okay? Right. So that is something as a society we need to move towards. Yeah. I think we need to move towards portable benefits. You know, where people are not tied to an employer and an employer lays them off or decides they're no longer needed. Suddenly they lose all the healthcare and so on. Um, we need some level of safety nets for an economy that is a gig economy where people are working for multiple jobs. Yeah, I, I think there are a number of societal investments we do need to make. But in the end, it comes back to, I can't defend somebody who sees automation 20 years from now taking their jobs over, who right. just sit there and go, I'm not going to do anything about it. I mean, that's where the personal responsibility comes up. And we, the good news is we have right. so many opportunities that if we just keep a positive attitude towards And by the way, the IRS last year reported our adjusted gross income for the country, all the tax returns you and I filed, $9 trillion. So that's after the adjustments. So it's about $12 trillion for us to, the pie is pretty big. That are like the Bureau of Labor Statistics has 800 named occupations it tracks. The problem I see is I think a lot of people, even who are comfortable now, don't want to give up on a certain way of life where uh, you, you really don't think that much about work. You clock in at nine, you, you clock out at five, you support your family, you kind of live for the weekends in your family, you provide, you pay your mortgage, and you do that year after year. And I think that way of thinking and living is incompatible with with the changes that we're talking I, about. It's been incom incompatible for 20 years. Yeah. Right? I mean, the the concept of a lifetime employment, a pension. Right. If you're still clinging to that, you're in delu you're delusional, right? Right. So so much more you have to think about. I'm going to change probably five or six jobs over the course, course of my career and what do I need to do to be to be to make that lifestyle work for me, right? John, the good news is I I see millions of people are doing that. Oh yeah, ten percent are not, and that's where the discontentment comes up, and where the politicians are really getting, um, you know, making it sound like that is the mainstream. It's not the mainstream, right? Well, and what I want to see is is how you fill this gap because my big beef with corporate employers is I feel like they have really done a disservice by they just don't invest nearly enough in in training and so what's come along is there's a bunch of organizations that are emerging that are starting to fill those gaps i just recently wrote about girls who code which which makes an attempt to 
get girls active in computer coding early and then align them through internships with tech companies to help fill this gap where otherwise you're excluding mass bodies of people who are not sort of fit to hire, right? Like companies have spent a lot of time like hiring only the narrowest sure. sort of fit. Sure. And to me, that's really incompatible with what we're trying to do now. But so, so I'm not going to defend corporations too much, but let me just paint a picture of the average corporation, Fortune 500 or S&P 500 corporation, 50 years ago, survived 50 or 60 years. Today, the average life is 20. Right. Okay. So they've had to make some radical rethink in terms of how they operate, how they yep. hire people, and so on. Okay. So not defending them. I'm just saying that's the reality. Right. The average worker has learned to become just as agile. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average American changes jobs every six or seven years, or actually over the career, six or seven, right? So you've got two extremes where corporations are seeing a very fluid labor force, and labor is looking at corporations and saying, they're not loyal. I better not completely exactly. put all my chips in that in that right. um, uh, basket here, right? So we, we, we do have a, a mismatch. I mean, there are six million jobs that are unfilled, John. I right. mean, you go to the trucking industry. They, they have 25,000 jobs at $70,000 that are unfilled. Right. And so when somebody whines about, hey, I don't have anything to do, you know, and, and, then, and then they'll go, well, trucking is such a dangerous job and it's such a lonely job and all that. Yes, it is. But don't complain that there's not much opportunity, right? I mean, U.S. Postal Service, not a great job to many of us. But I sat next to somebody on the train last week. He works for the Postal Service. He says, you know, Benny, between... If I work overtime and I do some supervisory jobs, right. he's making a hundred thousand a year. Yeah, he's making more than we are. What? The, the, yeah. the, the point is, you know, we can sit and whine and 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 say society's not taking care of us. There's so many opportunities, though. Right. So I'm starting to think that that a big part of the solution is the types of programs I'm talking about. Because you're pointing that companies have a they have a gig worker mentality and they're worried about overinvesting and people are going to leave, but um, what what you're seeing now is a little more of an effort to bridge the gap. There's some really interesting programs right now for autistic workers, for example. It's the same type of thing. How do you equip those people with enough skills and companies meet them halfway, right, and, and provide them with internships and opportunities to grow? And to me, that's a big part of, if you want to talk about the way beyond this, it's it's got to be partnering with groups. There's another one I was just looking it up called Launch Code, they provide paid internships for people who lack credentials. And to me, that's the gap because if you want to talk about these changes, you have to get across <clears throat> how you're going to reach everyone, not just not just a But John, don't feel bad for the worker. Also right. feel yeah, bad yeah. for I have interviewed so many corporate executives who go, I can't find the people. Right. You know, so there is a definite that's what I'm talking about. That the dysfunctional labor economy we have. Yeah, exactly. Six million jobs are unfilled. That's fair. Yep. And yet we're whining about, uh, you know, corporations yep. are bad, and you know they're putting all the money overseas, and I, it, 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 not a one-dimensional, um, uh, you know, issue here. A lot. Right. We've we've all confused the labor economy. Corporations right. have, regulators have, right. Workers have, and as parents we have. I mean. I look at parents who encourage kids to go to higher education and they'll proudly say, you know, it's going to be the first one who goes to graduate school or she's uh, 
I'm so proud she's in an Ivy League school. Seriously? I mean, you know, right. we need to step back and say, what is the reality? And, you know, what is the kid interested in, good at? We outsource a lot of stuff and we assume that somebody else is responsible. There's a lot of personal responsibility that's needed in this, uh, in this, uh, um. So you see your book as inspirational. I think I see it as a wake up call. Either way, it's a, either way, it's a good thing. It's, 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 it's partly very optimistic because I, the examples of the innovation and, happening with machines around us. But it us. is a wake-up call, though, isn't it? That's the first. The second yeah. is, it's a pragmatic, don't get too pessimistic. And the third is, a little bit of, uh, of um, guys, we yeah. need personal responsibility here. Our labor economy is seriously screwed up. Seriously screwed yeah. up. And we can't blame machines for that. It's man-made problems that have led us to that. Okay, yeah. And you can blame corporations, you can blame unions, you can blame... Everybody has screwed up the labor economy. Right. So as we wrap here, what is your sort of biggest hope for the book? I mean, obviously, you want it to be a success, a lot of copies, all that. But what would be the best case for you? What What would you like to see as a result of publishing the book? You know, two, two things. One is, I think, if I can combat some of the pessimism around machines, mm-hmm. um, that would be a very nice to have. Mm-hmm. Second thing is, you know, if I can get people to just appreciate what a wonderful labor economy we do have, right? It's it's a lot of mismatches, but God, it keeps 200 million people, this, I'm just talking about the U.S., generating 12 trillion in income. The pie is pretty damn big. Let's not, let's not critique it to death, you know? Let's keep making it better and improve it. Right? So that's my second point is there's a personal responsibility there for us to not listen to the politicians and say, oh, this thing is really screwed up. Let's improve it, tweak it. Some of it's going to take corporate moves. Some of it's going to take regulatory moves. Some of it's going to take personal responsibility. Right. So I, I'm, I'm very optimistic about what we have and how we can improve it. Well, I think and that's our common ground is, is the the value that we would place on the creative impulse to do something about this in your own way. By the way, I do have I do have one one thing I hope I do have, and John, this is where we will we will disagree, because of all the pessimism around automation. A number of countries, especially left leaning European countries, are actually looking at a concept called universal basic income. Switzerland actually had a referendum last month on it. Yeah. Okay. The concept is, since people won't have any income, as a society. We should give them thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, yeah. and not expect anything back in return. I think it's a big mistake. There are other ways mm. to accomplish the same thing. I would rather us take the earned income credit and tell people, "You earn so much, we'll supplement it." Right? UBI to me is is a is a dangerous um, concept. Yeah, and that probably delving into that is a little outside today's scope <laughs> but but it touches on a very interesting thing which is that some have some advocates have said that these robots and machines are going to essentially create a new leisure class of people who only work by choice and so there's a there's a utopianism around that too of uh, sort of a creative paradise of pursuing human potential while all the drudgery is handled by machines so not anytime, not anytime soon. <laughs> no, not I don't think soon. so. I don't think so. There's a lot of vexing problems to solve in the meantime, right? 
Um, anyway, it's a fascinating. And, and, and shame on us if if we take that layer of human talent, and they don't solve our energy problems and our yeah, right. deep seas problems and healthcare problems. Uh, you know, Naomi will and I will go back and forth quite often, and I'll go, Naomi, the day we don't have any problems to solve, yes, I will relax. But yeah. but I hope others are like me, which is we have so many problems to solve, and we need all kinds of human. Um, ingenuity to solve them. So I'm not worried about humans running out of things to solve and having nothing but leisure or losing their jobs completely to robots. That was uh, Naomi Bloom, by the way, in Full Bloom US on Twitter. And I'm going to give you the last word, Vinny. Uh, thanks for that excellent discussion. And I look forward to reading the book and posting review and all that stuff. Well, I, I'm sure people will beat me up because they'll say I'm not pessimistic enough. I am very optimistic about um, machines improving our workplaces, making us smarter, speedier, safer, whole bunch of other adjectives that... that. Well, I told you before, I'm not a real fan of the pessimism versus optimism distinction. I look at it more like people who are uh, getting off their ass and doing shit about this and people who are not. I don't care what their attitude is as long as they're part of the solution. And you've certainly taken that a lot further than most with the efforts you put into this. So... Hope it has a great success, and I look forward to checking it out. Thanks, man. Thank you.